You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 19. Today, we're sitting down with Arizona-based landscape photographer, writer, and educator, Colleen Minnick, to talk about the psychology of visual perception and how to use it in photography composition, using curiosity, play, and letting go of expectations to find your personal vision, how to cultivate a creative mindset, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Before we dive into today's interview, I just wanted to let you know that my Compose with Clarity live virtual workshop is launching again in September of 2021. So if you feel like your images are lacking something or you're not quite sure how to capture your experiences in the field, then this workshop may be for you. And as a thank you for listening to the podcast, I'm offering you 15% off the registration fee when you use the link composewithclarity.com to register. There you can get details about the workshop, see what previous students had to say, and to register with the discount. So again, go to composewithclarity.com to learn more, and I really hope to see you in September. Today, I am super excited to bring you one of my photography heroes, Colleen Minnick. I first learned of Colleen's work at the Out of Chicago Live Conference in 2020, and her approach to composition and creativity really resonated with me and has greatly benefited my own photography ever since. So I'm really excited to share with you what she had to say today. Plus, she is just an all-around fun person to chat with and learn from. So before we roll the interview, let me give you a little background on Colleen. After working as a software engineer for Intel Corporation for 10 years, Colleen decided to close the doors on her cushy cubicle job to pursue her love of the outdoors and photography in 2007. Since embarking on this journey to honor her passions, she has served three times as the artist in residence with Acadia National Park, has led numerous photography workshops for her own company, as well as the Arizona Highways Photography Workshops, the Moab Photography Symposium, the Nature Conservancy, Arizona Wildlife Federation's Becoming an Outdoor Woman, and for numerous private clients. In 2017, in addition to her co-ed workshops, she started holding women's only photography workshops under the brand Sheography to inspire women to enjoy the outdoors safely and comfortably with their cameras. In late 2019, she started a photography advice column called Dear Bubbles, which I highly recommend you check out after you listen to our conversation today. It is packed with valuable nuggets of information about photography and creativity. Colleen has authored several award-winning guidebooks, including Wild in Arizona, Photographing Arizona's Wildflowers, A Guide to When, Where, and How, the instructional ebook Seeing the Light in Outdoor Photography, and photographing Acadia National Park, the essential guide to when, where, and how, of which she has just released a second edition. Colleen is also an active member and board member for the Outdoor Writers Association of America, 
where she has received numerous awards for her service to the organization. She's also a member of Women Writing the West and is currently serving as a contributor to Nature Photographers Network. Whew. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Colleen Minnick. All right, Colleen, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Brenda. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I had first heard you speak at the Out of Chicago live conference last year, and I was really blown away by the concepts that you are sharing around visual perception and composition, which we will definitely talk about a bit today, among other things. Um, But I just wanted to say that I've really appreciated the clarity and honesty that you bring to your presentation. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks so much for that feedback. I'm I'm happy to hear that it helps. And, uh, you know, that's what we're here for. Those That's what those conferences are for, is to make everybody a better photographer and a better human being, quite honestly. So, yeah. 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 Well, that's so great. Thank you. So I've already given your bio in the pre-recorded intro, but I thought before we dive in, maybe you could share a little bit about your origin story. You know, tell us who is Colleen? <laughs> Where are you from and how did you get interested in outdoors writing and photography? Yeah, so I never intended to become an outdoor photographer or a writer. Um, I was born in Ohio and I moved 10 weeks later to Little Rock, Arkansas, where I grew up on a creek and a forested property, a small one, but a forested property. So I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. Um, About halfway through my childhood, I moved to Chicago, Illinois. I started picking up a lot more, um, a much greater focus on academics, on athletics. I ended up getting a volleyball scholarship to Stanford University. Wow. Yeah. So I wasn't really involved in the outdoors. There was a lot of gym time, (laughs) a lot of practice. Um, but, um, so I went to Stanford. I ended up transferring to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and that's kind of a kind of an interesting story. Um, when I was being recruited, I didn't know that they had a business. Or I knew that they didn't have an undergraduate business program at Stanford, um, but you go to Stanford anyway. Like right, right. <laughs> you get yeah. in, you get a free ride, you you go. And right. so after my freshman year, I decided that I really did want to focus specifically on business, and so that's why I transferred to University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Gotcha. Right out of school, I took a job as a software engineer at Intel Corporation. So again, like very technical, very methodical. There was really, at least in my mind, there wasn't a creative bone in my body. Um, And so I got really stressed out. I started having some health problems uh, at Intel after working there for a bit. And um, my mom suggested that I get a life and (laughs) told me to go. (laughs) Thanks, mom. Oh, (laughs) Gotta listen to mom, right? That's right. <laughs> Mom's no best. And she she just like kind of randomly picked this photography class at a community college. I mean, she could have picked chess or underwater basket weaving. Like she literally could have picked anything. I would have escaped to anything at that point. Yeah. And so yeah. um the very first day, like it was like I, it was just boom, right? Like, do you ever have these experiences where your head just sort of explodes? I was like, oh my God, this is a thing. Right. And so um, I ended up taking five semesters, not the same one, um, but a series of five semesters of photography. It was black and white, darkroom development, very hands-on. I learned the technical aspects. I learned some of of the creative aspects. But, you know, when you start out... um, 
you're just so wound up about like what ISO am I going to use? What depth of field do I use? Am I doing rule of thirds right? Like, and so yeah. for me, it became very technical, very, and I'm technical anyway. So it was right. almost like just running down a checklist. And it wasn't until later, which we, we can get into if you'd like, it wasn't until later that I really pieced together the more creative aspects where I could express myself through photography, as opposed to just being like, here's a beautiful scene. Isn't this pretty? You know, right. so, yeah. um, and that, that, that was an evolution that that's a long, <laughs> that's a lot of work um, yeah. and a long time. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely touch upon that a little bit later. Um, and it sounds like we have s sort of similar starts in that I have a science background as well. Right. Um, and so when I was start starting to learn photography, I was all into the technical and that's all I wanted to do was the technical, technical part of it. Um, and one of my buddies that I do a lot of photography with is like the complete opposite. He's much more create the creative brain. And, you know, so, uh, it's been interesting doing photography with him because we approach it such in such different ways, but I'm trying to, you know, push myself more into the creative side and the more expressive side. And that's been really rewarding to do that. It is. But, and it's, it's yeah. a blend, right? People think it like is, art yeah. is just like all creative. It's not, you've got to use all parts of your brain and embrace right. that. And I think if you're embracing like your science background, for example, that can come in handy in how you experience the world. I think that's really important that we tap into our own backgrounds and our own strengths yeah. to create a path and a process that works for you and only you, right? Right, right. yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I have a lot of topics that I want to discuss with <laughs> you today, <laughs> awesome. but I, I narrowed it. it down to like four main areas. Okay. okay. <laughs> so there it. are visual perception, creativity, your personal process as a creator, mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit about the business side of photography since you do have a business background. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive into some visual perception. Let's do it. Um, so <laughs> I've heard you talk about various aspects of the psychology of creativity and how our brains work to perceive visual information. So what got you interested in learning about this side of the creative process? And when did you start to incorporate that into your own work? Yeah, I became interested in the psychology of it, uh, gestalt psychology, specifically human perceptions, after I got stuck. Um, mm. I was an artist in residence in Acadia National Park um, three times. They couldn't get rid of me. And <laughs> on the third, on the third visit, I I got to a point with my photography where I could click the shutter. I could determine what the depth of field was. I could get up at sunrise and sunset and I could make a decent image. And I mean, decent in terms of like sellable. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. was, a, I'm, you know, full-time professional photographer. I have to sell my work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that just became so repetitive to the point of complete boredom. I mean, I, and, and when I was in Acadia and it, this was in January and February of 2013, when mm -hmm. I was in, it was very profound. Like, it, <laughs> like I'll never forget it. Yeah. I, you just, you don't forget being bored, you know, after you've left your job, you know, and right. like, oh, this is not a great place to be. And anybody who's felt stuck knows this feeling. It's frustrating and you're trying so hard and like, it's just not working and you're doing everything right. And it just doesn't feel good. And so yeah. um, at that point, I just realized that I was out of ideas for photography. 
And just kind of one by one, I picked up, you know, books like Austin Kleon's, you know, How to Steal Like an Artist. Um, mm-hmm. I picked up Rudolf Arnheim's Art and Visual Perception. And it just like one book after another, it was like, oh, 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 that, oh, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it kind of builds upon itself. And as with anything, you know, we need to practice, we need the repetitions. So at that point in, in Acadia, I had just reached my technical proficiency. So for those people out there who are struggling <laughs> with technical yeah. proficiency, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. You just need enough <laughs> repetitions. And right. like Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, he has this idea of the 10,000 deliberate repetitions or deliberate hours. And, you know, people debate whether it's 10,000 or seven, you know, 7,501, right. whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. you have to practice. And that's yeah. what I've been putting my energies towards since 2013 is I, you know, I'll read a book or I'll read something and I'll be like, oh, well, let me try this with my work. Let me try that. Let me, mm-hmm. let me do this. And how does that fit into my, do I like that? Do I not? Like, is that something that I can embrace in my own process? Does that make sense? And so for me, photography has actually become a way to discover. Um, it, it's really more about following my curiosities and how things work. Um, yeah. I, mean, I obviously love the great outdoors and I love, you know, being outside and getting other people outside, but it's also for me a way to stay challenged and, mm-hmm. And really so do you grow find, as a photographer. Are you doing other types of photography besides nature and landscape photography then to to challenge your creative side in that way? Um, that's a great way to do it. Um, I I do dabble in like the other <laughs> just a few weeks ago. I, I did some bird photography from a blind for the first time. And that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> I made 1400 images in an hour. Whoa. I make I make 1400 <laughs> images in like 2 months like in nature photography. So it was quite quite a different experience, but one of the things that I did coming out of Intel, which I think was very important with my own development, um but maybe sort of a strange way to get to it. Um is that I tried everything. I tried every mm. type of photography except for weddings and funerals and babies. Um, I don't have a page. I don't have patience for any of those. Yeah, um, no, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do, more power to you. Like you can have all the business that I would have gotten. Um, right. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I so. The backstory to that is that I had gotten feedback coming out of Intel when I asked some mentors and people who had been in the industry, like, how do I make it as a full-time photographer? I'm leaving my job. Like, how do I do this? And um, I got two pieces of feedback. One, I'd never make it as a landscape photographer because the industry Ouch. had changed so much. Not oh. a great thing to hear. No, no, no. Yeah, this is Because stock, stock photography had changed. Yeah, Exactly. Okay. You nailed it. Yeah, yeah, stock photography had sort of collapsed and changed. And then the other was that I was female and I wouldn't hack it traveling alone, which is ironically exactly what I loved doing. Right. <laughs> so I actually believed them, um, which in hindsight was both troubling and the best thing I could have done. And what I did coming out of Intel is I, I literally set aside landscape photography to do everything else. I photographed jewelry golf, soccer, senior portraits, landscape architect. I mean, like I, like I said, everything except land, you know, weddings, funerals and babies and, and landscape photography. And every time I did it, I was like, gosh, I don't love this. Yeah. Like, is this why I left my job? I don't love this either. Like, yeah. And so I ended up at an outdoor writers association of America conference in 2010. And I saw hundreds of people being successful at outdoor photography. And I was like, oh, if they can do it. 
I'll figure this out. And so yeah. I ended up doing like food photography for three solid years. Um, wow. I did I did pretty much everything commercially for three years coming right out of Intel um, when I left Intel in 2007. And so I've dabbled a bit with all of those different things and they have made me a better photographer. So that is one way to keep challenged is to just try something else, even if you're not good at it, even if you don't like it. Right. You know, just to get a different idea. I mean, that's when we feel stuck. That's the problem is we've we've run out of ideas. So we just need to go ping our brain in just a little different way. That's all. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I like to do things like, okay, my goal here is to just go out and make a whole bunch of terrible pictures that I'm going to throw out. Right. Just like zero expectation and just experiment. And um, and usually I don't come back with something that I like, (laughs) but I've learned something in the process of like, oh, I hadn't thought of doing it this way before. And so next time when I have an actual like subject that I'm really interested in, I'll try this new thing. And I find that that can help me um, move past some, some of those creative slumps. There's there's a couple of really important things that you mentioned that I want to emphasize is no expectations. Um, you know, I I was a planner, so I would plan and visualize everything and I'd have my checklist and I'd go out and I'd be like, okay, the sun needs to be here. The wave needs to be here. Like... And then it would never happen. And then I'd right. get frustrated and I'd go home. Um, yeah. Now I don't do that. Now I approach with uh, Mushen, which is a Zen, Buz- 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 <laughs> Zen Buddhism term yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for releasing expectations, releasing judgment. And so I go in with no expectation of making an image. All I'm there to do is learn about the world around me, learn about my craft, learn about myself, learn about other people. It's all about learning and shifting that requires sort of this this attitude change. I think yeah. the other thing that you really you brought up that is so important is giving yourself space to fail. So yeah. one of the things that happened in the 2013 debacle or transformation for me was I was like, okay, I'm going to go out. I'm just going to play. Like nobody has any expectation that I make any sort of image at all here during my residency, except for one, because I had to donate one print one and I had already made an image I was proud of. So yeah. I had, I didn't have that personal expectation. And for two or three weeks after that, as I was reading things, I would try things. And I mean, I made the worst photographs you possibly could. <laughs> like, they were horrible. <laughs> but I think you have to take those, those steps backwards sometimes to grow. And giving yeah. yourself that space to do that is, is really important. And I'm not sure that people do that. I mean, people... They have, you know, five days of vacation. They're going to a beautiful spot. They have to get up at sunrise and sunset. Like, go, right? Right, Um, yeah. So I understand those pressures. I've been there. I've been in that corporate space where, like, photography is a hobby and photography is sort of, it's supposed to be fun. (laughs) It's supposed to be fun. But then you get there and you're like, it's not fun. It's making me crazy. Right. So, um, but giving yourself, if you're really in sort of this learning journey, making a lot of bad images it's a great thing to do i still yeah. make really bad images today and if you're not making bad images if you're not failing you're probably not pushing it hard enough right so. yeah yeah it becomes too formulaic otherwise mm-hmm. yeah so to to continue our conversation about visual perception i'd like to read a quote from dorothea lang that you shared at this year's mm-hmm. at a chicago live conference which is the camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera So for those people who are trying to improve their landscape and nature compositions and have heard of this concept before of, I just need to learn how to see, 
Can you please define what visual perception is and then explain how that relates to that quote by Dorothea? Yeah. And I, if I can, I even want to expand it. I know we yeah. seem to think of photography as the art of seeing. Um, our human perceptions actually come from all of our senses, not mm. just our eyesight. So like smell, for example, goes straight to the limbic brain and it can trigger memories and experiences. So um, I know Dorothea Lang said, you know, seeing, but I would like to expand it into maybe more like experiencing with all of our senses, because that's where we develop our perceptions. Yeah. Um, if that makes any totally. sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So how I mean, how I go about this is I go out into a location. I never go out to make photographs. I don't go on a shoot. I don't go on an outing. I go on just an adventure. I go on a hike. I go stand up paddleboarding. I go I go do something. And mm -hmm. the camera comes with me to tell my story and to share things that I deemed important enough to notice. And so I spend all of my time in the field really just paying attention. Um, we use uh, mindfulness, you know, mm -hmm. paying attention to the present moment. And I'll take a variety of different inventories. So I'll, I'll stand in a location if I'm getting excited about something. It'll be like, okay, let's start with some inventories. So mm -hmm. the first one is visual inventory. And visual inventory is literally picking out visual elements. So rock, water, tree, like very little, literal. Um, what we would normally, um, we've been taught is sort of primary subject. Mm, the, mm -hmm. the trouble with primary subject is that our viewers see the entire frame. They don't necessarily see, I mean, we, we can use focus and we can use lighting and we can use a variety of techniques to emphasize a particular subject in the frame. I like to think of it as a visual elements because we, when we get into the next type of inventory, which is spatial, it's the relationships between uh, shapes, lines, layers, and that's really the start of Gestalt psychology and this idea of human perceptions. So, mm -hmm. you know, you and I looking at two circles that are different colors will perceive them very differently than if they were the same color, for example. Right. So these relationships come into play. And then there's temporal inventory, time, and photography. We seem, we tend to think of light. We tend to think of season. We, t you know, um, time of day. Um, Motion, so I guess. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so that can that can mean a, a variety of different things, but that that can start to trigger the memories and the experiences and try to it starts poking at what's already inside our brain. Mm -hmm. And so the the next two are sensory and inner inner inventory and they for me kind of work together. Sensory is where we're using all of our senses to to explore the scene. So what do you smell? What do you I've tasted seaweed before. Like why? <laughs> like and that I think gets to the heart of what Dorothea Lang is talking about is is I mean I've tasted seaweed like in my life. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like and so it's beyond just like here's a pretty scene, take a picture. And right. we're creating additional depth, we're creating additional meaning based on what we're experiencing through all of our senses. And inner inventory is what memories and experiences it triggers. So like, for example, you could show up in front of like a mountain and be like, oh, it reminds me of my grandmother's house. That would be an, a reason to make a photograph in my right. mind. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. 
that's sort of the start of it. And once you have the inner inventory, the idea then becomes developing your own personal intent. Like, what Mm -hmm. are you trying to do with this photograph? And then using human perceptions to match. So using color, for example, like, do you want people to feel peaceful? Do you want them to feel more energy? Well, you might use red, a a bigger emphasis on reds in your frame than you would green, for example. Right. Um, You know, how how the lines are moving, how the lines are working together. If you want this layer on top of this layer, like, so composition for me comes from intent, uh, Mm -hmm. photographer's intent. And trying to, for a lack of a better word, manipulate viewers into seeing exactly what you want them to see. And I know that's that's kind of a tricky business because we all see differently. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to all look at a photograph and interpret it in our own different ways based on the lens that we look through. But ultimately, you know, people respond to reds in a very similar manner. They respond to green in a very similar manner. They respond to a primary subject in the bottom left corner very similarly. So it's, that's where that, I thought was kind of a really long answer. (laughs) No, no, that's great. That's great. But you're seeing a much bigger picture than just rule of thirds. And that's where I think Dorothea Lange's quote comes in is, I'm out there to discover the world. I'm right. I'm out there to discover what gets me excited, what my curiosities are, and and the photography is just kind of a celebration of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like how you were saying about experiencing. So I think you know, changing the language around learning to see versus learning to experience. Really, you know, and how do we experience the world? We experience our, the world through all of our different senses, and so they should all be important in how we're interpreting something. So that, that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Yeah. So one of the one of the things um, that my friend Guy Tall and I we banter, but we do agree that philosophically that the value of a photograph has already mostly been achieved by the time you click the shutter. So if you think about Mm. that, like that that really talks to having the experience first, creating the meaning first, creating the learning first, if you will, and then make the photograph based on that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I one of the the when I'm teaching composition, one of the first things that I like to say is the first thing you need to do, first step is to connect with the scene. And so that's getting back to like what you're saying with the the experiencing the the first thing that needs to happen is you're making some sort of connection with the scene that's causing you to say, "Oh, I really want to create a picture from this." Mm-hmm. Um and and like you were saying your conversation with guy that it happens when you click the shutter, that mindfulness part, that connecting part, the using your senses and being there just in that moment of mm-hmm. sort of flow, hopefully, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're lucky, uh, and where like the world just melts away and it's just you taking the photograph. And yeah, I like that idea of that's the most important time. Mm-hmm. And um, if you want some science behind that, the behind flow, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, which I don't know if I've said his last name right. It's a very difficult name to pronounce. Uh, but he's a psychologist, a researcher, and he suggests that in order to get into flow, you have to have a high skill level and a high challenge level. Um, mm. When you have those two working together, then you get into flow. And there's a variety of other different uh, emotions that you can experience. Um, you know, if you have low skill and low challenge, you can get apathetic and bored. And if you have high high challenge and low skill, you can get anxious and frustrated, which, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, we've, <laughs> we've all right. been there. We've all experienced <laughs> that. So, um, yeah, trying to get into flow. You know, I don't, I don't go out into the field going like, I'm going to try to get into flow, you know, right. but ultimately... Yeah 
when you have that blend where you you're hitting on all cylinders and you have sort of this new challenge, which is what you were talking about earlier, you know, different types of photography, you know, looking, you know, looking at a scene in a different way, using a different memory, using a different, um, you know, I use a lot of words. So using different words can really help keep that challenge level high. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So for people who are just hearing about Gestalt theory for the first time, um, could you go into a little bit more about what it is? Maybe talk about some of the principles of it. Yeah, so Gestalt psychology just really describes how we make order out of chaos. And it's really how we see holes, um, the whole, like the whole of an object um, through the pieces and how they work together. And so, you know, when I talk about Gestalt psychology, um, you know, I'm talking about human perceptions. And, you know, again, it comes down to, at least for me, lines, layers and light um, in terms of creating depth. I mean, that's an important thing as a, as a photographer. We don't have depth as one of our dimensions to work with. And so we see depth three-dimensionally, but our camera does not. And so, you know, there's other parts like visual weight, um, visual energy, how we, it's really from a photography perspective, it's how do we use the visual elements? How do we arrange them within the frame? And that's really composition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, when I'm when I'm standing in front of the scene again, I'm considering what meaning am I trying to convey? What kind of energy am I trying to convey? And I'll pick, kind of, if you will, kind of from a menu of <laughs> of, of perceptions. You know, if I want people to feel like things are falling, I'll put something a little bit heavier, or darker on the top of the frame, for example. If I want mm-hmm. it to feel at rest, I'm going to put it at the bottom. If I want people to feel peaceful about a scene, I'll make it horizontal. If yeah. I want them to have more drama I'm going to pick vertical and so it's not so much this idea of checking boxes and rules it's just trying to understand how people in general it's you know it's not foolproof but it's people right. in general how they see the world and then for us how do we incorporate that so that we we convey what we intend you know right applying things in a certain way these are relationships so that that message is given mhm yeah People argue a lot about the rules of composition and, you know, one of my pet peeves when I was first learning photography was like, well, here are all the 21 rules of composition or, you know, another (laughs) article is like, these are the eight must know rules of composition. No one seems to agree on the number of rules. And then they all say, (laughs) no, and just break the rules. And, you know, I find that to be so unhelpful because it's like, well, how, what does that even mean? And why have them if we're just going to break them, you know? And what I like about the Gestalt psychology and understanding how our brains work is that, for one, it, it in some ways explains why some of the rules are appealing. You know, Absolutely. there is a reason why rule of thirds right. can work, you know? Right. Um, why the center of the frame can work for right. an object at rest, you know? things like that. So that has been very helpful. Um, so I encourage anyone who's, you know, learning composition to to study some of these Gestalt principles, because I think it can help decipher out like, okay, I don't need to be figuring out where these things need to go in the frame according to some set of rules. I need to understand more about what relationship they're relaying in terms of a message to whoever's looking at it. Absolutely. And and the two resources that I would point people to are, are Rudolf Arnheim's book, Art and Visual Perception, and then Richard Zakia. I think it's called Perception and Imaging. Um, okay. Those two books. Uh, Zakia was a 
was a student of Arnheim. So, as, and he was a photographer. So the Zakia book is a little bit more focused on imaging and photography. Yeah. Um, but Rudolf Arnheim's book is more just about art in general, okay. um, which of course applies to photography. And right. so yeah. um, those are two great resources. I, I, awesome. I too, Brenda, I had the same struggle as you did with composition. Um, it just became like running around the field, just being like, Okay, um, I need to have something in the foreground. So let me find a stick. Yeah, put a <laughs> stick right here. <laughs> Boom. Rule of thirds, right? <laughs> and it would be a horrible image. Like it would be yeah. technically perfect. Like it would be technically right. perfect. Like I, I checked the box. Like, good right. job. You can yeah. put a stick in the bottom third <laughs> corner. Congratulations. But I, I think that's what happened for me is... I, I I asked a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions in general. I asked a lot of questions when I was growing up. I was a curious kid. And I was the yeah. one that was like, the why? 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 Right. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> and so at some point I was like, I don't know why I'm doing rule of thirds. And it turns out that there was a fair number of times the reason I didn't like my image is because I was using it incorrectly in terms right. of human perceptions. I wanted something to be static. I wanted somebody... I wanted it to be still and I was putting it in a point of energy and right. that was a mismatch between my intent and how we would communicate with the outside world. And and that's that that's a that's a challenge. Um, right. And it can be really frustrating. And then oh yeah, the break the rules one, that one. Yes. I'm I'm my next dear bubbles is on breaking the rules. So Oh, awesome. Oh, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> yeah, my next my next dear bubbles column is all about um yeah. I That's have, great. I have some thoughts about <laughs> yes. being oh, told to break the rules. <laughs> I, I love your Dear Bubbles column, by oh, the way. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's just like, it's so great. Um, and I, I do mention it in the intro, but if you want to t talk a little bit more about Dear Bubbles, please feel free. Oh, it's so much fun. It's been so much fun. Um, I basically, so with Dear Bubbles, Dear Bubbles came from people asking me a lot of questions. And one day I was like, you know, it'd be really fun. I could be like, Dear Abby, only for <laughs> photography. And I'll call it Dear Bubbles. Bubbles is one of my many nicknames. And so like it was kind of this like sarcastic, like sort of funny thing. But then it's turned in like people have sent in like amazing questions. Like, why do I feel stuck? And, you know, why do I suck? And how do I <laughs> depth of field and like these are legit questions that we all like kind of have and we're right. all like for me it was a wonderful way to bring the community together and the common challenges that we all have as photographers so yeah. I was doing it once a week for a year I did it for a year once wow. a week and it was thankfully it was through the it was through the pandemic which oh, <laughs> gave, that's me, nice. it gave yeah. me something to do right right um, but it's I've changed it to monthly now so it's the first Wednesday of every month and I'm actually working on a book I'm going to put all of these columns Ooh, together and add a few a, new ones. That's a um, great idea. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so hopefully it'll help. I mean, that's that's what we're all here to do, right, is help each other out in this journey. So yeah, make it a yeah. little bit easier on everybody. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so shifting gears a little bit into more on the creativity stuff. Um, so I was wondering if you could... Um, talk about your process for using visual language to translate your intent for an image and maybe start off by defining what visual language is. We've talked about it a little bit already, but. Yeah. So I think a lot of people will recognize verbal language, right? We were taught how to talk, right? We were taught 
how to communicate with each other, and we use words. Visual language, again, goes back into that gestalt psychology and the human perceptions and, you know, how people perceive gravity and lines and things like that. And just matching, for me, my process, um, because I I was never taught visual language, I, w- I didn't have any art classes until, you know, very late in life, um, I use verbal language. So I use mm. words. And then once I have the words, I match it to the visual language and what I understand of the visual language. So again, it kind of goes down to if I'm standing in front of a scene and I'm responding to it in a very peaceful way, I'll start to go through sort of my mem- my menu of, <laughs> of visual language, which is, you know, horizontal orientation, heavy emphasis on greens. Let's put heavy, dark things at the bottom of the frame. Like, let's maybe center, you know, the the dominant visual element um, and make sure that everything supporting it around it is at rest and as at peace. And so one of the things that I do when I'm, when I'm talking, th- I talk, to, I talk to myself <laughs> a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of time alone. Um, so I talk to myself, but it helps me understand what I'm connecting with. What am I responding to and why? And mm-hmm. so it's like, I'm responding to the waves and how they're moving. And it looks like, you know, it looks like a ballet movement for me. And again, that's going to come from my own background. I take adult ballet classes. I understand, you know, that's that's pulling my experience into connecting with the landscape in a new and different way. And so I'll pay attention to those words like flow, for example, or silky or, you know, movement. Those all would imply something like a slow shutter speed. Right. You know, if I'm like, if I'm talking about PKs and staccato, that's very sharp motion. And so that would be frozen. That would be a fast shutter speed. And so I let my words like the, you know, and, and they don't have to be perfect words. They're just coming out of my brain. They're just coming out of my mouth. Maybe they're being written down. Mm-hmm. I just I use those words and I pay attention to them. And I'm like, okay, well, if I'm saying flow, then this is what I, this is how I need to approach my technical, uh, my technical settings, my composition, my lens choice, where I stand, all of those things based on that it's that intent and those words that I'm using to support that. And so for me, that's been very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. I find it very difficult to stand in front of a scene and be like, oh, visual language. Like <laughs> I've, I can pull out a composition, like boom, like it right. just doesn't, I just don't have, and, and I know that there are people who are very talented and very skilled at doing that. And again, it kind of goes back to what we said earlier, which is, you know, I have my skill set, I have my strengths, and I'm just tapping into the strengths that I have to help me through (laughs) to make an image. And if people have a little bit different approach to that, if they can use visual language right out of the barrel, like, awesome, like, do that. Like, there's no need to convolute the process with words the way that I do. Like, but um, for people who might be struggling with that, using words is a really good way um, to, to connect that verbal language with the visual language. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm one of those people who struggles with words. And um, what I have found sometimes is to think about adjectives over nouns. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I think so that's the Brian uh, Peterson thing, right? Didn't is, is it? Brian, I don't I think so. Brian Peterson okay. talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that helps me start to think about, OK, what is it about rather than what is it of? And that's the key. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it took me a long time to figure that out (laughs) and start using those. And for some reason, thinking of adjectives is the trigger for me to be like, okay, what am I really being drawn to here? 
So long as we can get down beyond adjectives like pretty and beautiful and oh, like, yeah, yeah. That's, right. you know, that's sort of the surface level. Um, I, I, I use the photographing about something as opposed to photographing of something. Photograph, a photograph yeah. of something is more documentary and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But about something is really implies metaphorical associations. You know, this looks like something else. Um, you know, pareidolia is something that I use. Uh, pareidolia is um, our brains making order out of chaos based on the existing knowledge in our brain. So like when we were kids, we sat and we looked at clouds and we were like, oh, look, it's a bird in the sky when it or you know, maybe it was Snoopy or a dragon or whatever it was. That's pareidolia. And that's that it's sort of a cousin of metaphorical associations. But um, that's where we're going to start using the raw materials that we already have in our brain to connect with the landscape. Right. Um, and so getting sort of deeper than just it's beautiful or it's pretty or I like it. Ask yourself why you like it and just keep it's that why again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Why, 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 why until why? you get to, yeah, until you get to something, something juicy, something good. Yeah. So I've heard you talk about, and I think we're, we're touching upon this right now, uh, the, this thing called conceptual blending. Mm. Um, and also having an autotelic personality and Wallace's four steps models of, uh, <laughs> four step model of creativity, which all sound like super complicated and, and nerdy in a way, but could you totally kind are. of, yeah. But <laughs> and we're going to embrace it because it's yes. awesome. <laughs> so can you break them down a little bit? I mean, I know we're kind of already talking about conceptual blending, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, is let like, me, bring, let yeah. me start with that. Okay. Um, Cause those are, those that's actually a lot of concepts. Um, so yeah, con conceptual blending is sort of a cousin again of metaphorical association and pareidolia. Conceptual blending is where you take two existing concepts and you put them together in a new and different way. Um, okay. It's not a photography term. It mm -hmm. is basically just how we perceive the world and how things come together. It's it's uh, creative experts actually agree that. Creativity doesn't come from like this magic place and then you don't like snap your fingers and it happens like the aha. They're not sure how the aha moment happens, but they do know how to feed it. Um, and it starts and I'm going to get into the wall. I'll get into the Wallace model of creativity here in a second, which explains that. Um, but it starts with only two existing ideas. And mm -hmm. so if you've ever had two existing thoughts ever cross your brain in your lifetime, you actually have the capacity to be creative. And when I learned that, I was like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, good. I thought I was not, I was not creative and which was a silly, you know, silly notion. But um, yeah. I think a lot of people don't think that they have the capacity to be creative when in fact, literally everybody does. It's just yeah. how we put them together. So conceptual blending, like a great example of tech of uh, conceptual blending in the real world is like our iPhones, our Androids. We had the internet before, we had phones before, we had calculators before, we had all this stuff before. And they, we just put it together in a new and different way. Well, we didn't, I didn't do anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Apple did, you know, they, they put it together in a new and different way and that created something new. And gotcha. so like something as simple of like buffalo chicken pizza, that's conceptual blending. And so right. from a photographer's perspective, well, um, conceptual blending is a subconscious process. Um, it happens if you when you go to sleep, your prefrontal cortex goes to sleep. So it, prefrontal cortex is our social filter and it tells us that our ideas are stupid and we shouldn't say things and it protects us from making, you know, 
a silly, a silly fool out of ourselves right. in Social front of other pop. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, some of us have better developed filters than others. Right. <laughs> Artists are notorious for not having any filter at all. But what happens when your prefrontal cortex goes to sleep is conceptual blending um, can happen. And for humans, it happens when we sleep. Hmm. Um, it, it, comes in the forms of dreams. Okay. So if you've ever remembered your dream, you've experienced conceptual blending. And so as photographers, how we can embrace that, if we understand that that concept or that process that's happening subconsciously is we literally want to dream while we're awake. Mm. And so what what we do is we go out in the field and we use things like metaphorical association and pareidolia and ask ourselves, what else is it? And, you know, like I said earlier, like I might interpret a, a branch or, a, a you know, an icicle doing a PK movement, which is a ballet movement, a very sharp movement of the foot. That's me. That's conceptual blending. I'm using my ballet background and I'm connecting it with the stick and the icicle. Mm hmm. And so that's, for me, how we can create deeper meaning. Um, what that requires, though, if we're going to dream while we're awake and we're going to try and connect in the land, with the landscape in our own individual way, is that requires a lot of raw material. It requires a lot of stuff in our brains. And that's where, for me, the Wallace model of creativity comes in. Okay. And so... Wallace Mall of Creativity is something that I found in that 2013 transformation. And it was like, boom, like my head exploded again. Like, I didn't know I had the capacity to be creative. And it's a four-step process. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I can follow four steps to be creative. Sure. Right. Um, so it was very ironic, but it was very... Um, it was very enlightening. It was, it was very freeing. So the four stages of Wallace Mall of Creativity are preparation, incubation, Illumination, inspiration, and verification. And how I interpret that for my photography is the first step, preparation, is we fill our brains with knowledge and ideas. And that's to get as many pieces of raw material as I possibly can to facilitate that conceptual blending. Okay. So it's just gathering information. So um, it could be brushing your teeth. It could be growing to the grocery store. It's not necessarily photographic. Um, mm -hmm. And I would encourage it to not be because that's where you're going to get more interesting ideas. That's where you're going to get deeper connections. And that's why um, you talked about autotelic. That's why having the experience is more important for me. And that's what autotelic is, is doing something for the sake of doing it without expecting a result. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I guess in theory, if I'm my intent is to learn something new, I actually actually technically do have a result that I'm striving for, right. but um, I'm doing something just for the fun of doing it. And I'm, right. I'm just trying to pick up ideas. And so part of why I can have no expectations out in the field for a photograph is that I know at every like all the time I'm collecting ideas. I mean, I'll look at things in the, like I said, the grocery store or a museum or online, or I'm watching a movie and something will spark. It'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. And I file it away. Anytime I say that's intriguing, that's interesting. I start to think about how I might incorporate that into my work. And that's incubation. That's the mm -hmm. second step of the Wallace model of creativity. And so I incubate, I think about, I visualize how I would use that, how I would incorporate that into my photograph. And I'm just making it up. Um, Ansel Adams called this dry shooting, where you would actually try to create a photograph in your brain without using, without touching a camera. It's just visualization. Mm -hmm. And so I will make images in my head like all the time. Like when I'm not photographing, when I don't have a camera, when I'm sitting in front of my computer, when I'm listening to music, like anywhere. 
and then I shut it off. Um, and we can collect ideas and we can incubate, we can prepare and incubate both anywhere like in life, mm-hmm. and then we can do it in the field. So when we're out in the field, the idea of collecting knowledge and, and, and ideas comes from those inventories that I talked about earlier about having, you know, that conversation with yourself about what are you responding to and why, because that's you collecting ideas from the actual moment. And then incubating is asking yourself, you know, what am I responding to? What words are coming to mind? What senses, you know, what sensory experiences am I having? And then how do I match that with visual language? Right. And so at some point, and it, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we get out in the field and we have this aha moment. We get really excited about something. We want to make a photograph and everything kind of falls into place and we're in flow and you click the shutter and you're like, yes, that's it. That's what I wanted to convey with this particular scene. That's the third stage. That's inspiration illumination. Um, and that's where the aha moment happens. Um, gotcha. And, and, I'll point out here that sometimes the aha moment happens right away. Like, so sometimes when I'm collecting ideas, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then sometimes it takes years for those things to come together. So I have, I have plenty of examples where I've, I've had conceptual blending of like one of, one of uh, the more profound moments for me was having a conceptual blending between seaweed and bubbles in Acadia National Park. I was photographing seaweed and foam separately and I was photographing bubbles separately for like two years. And then finally it was like, boom, there it is. Like that's what I need to photograph. And so it came together. That's so when we talk about the creative model, we talk about creativity, like giving yourself some space and having some patience with it and trust that it will happen, um, I, I think is an important part of at least my process. Like I trust that my brain will do the work that I've taught it to do. And it does. It doesn't always do it on my time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it does. So I'm curious when that moment happens, like let's take your seaweed bubbles uh, as mm-hmm. an example. So you make the conceptual blend of, you know, bubbles and seaweed. And now I, you know, I have that visualization of this is what I want to create. Does that happen uh, ahead of time in your experience? And then you go out and you're looking for the bubbles in the seaweed? Or is it that like, oh, my gosh, you just crossed over. You just saw bubbles in the seaweed and you're like, boom, oh, my gosh, this is the two things that I've been photographing. And it's more of an identification in the field. That's a that's a great clarification. That's a great great question. Um, the answer is a little bit of both. Um, what doesn't happen is I don't have I don't have the visualization like at home, for example, and then go out into the field looking for it. So I don't yeah. have the expectation. So what visualization does when you're not photographing is it trains your brain. You're building muscle memory so that when mm. you get out into the field, you can actually respond to it. You can respond. You can notice it. You pay attention. So I used to use visualization very differently because I'm a I'm a planner. Like I'm <laughs> very structured, and right. um, so I used to create spreadsheets of visualizations of shots that I would design, and wow. then I would go out into the field and use it as a checklist, a shot list. I'd be like, okay, we're gonna do this at two o'clock. We're going to do this at four o'clock and here's the fog. So we're going to do this. And that led to a tremendous amount of frustration because the universe does not care what you have planned. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It does not care. Uh, And I I just, photography was really frustrated, frustrating for me um, Mm -hmm. because things would never turn out the way that I wanted them to. And that wasn't how I wanted to use, I wanted to embrace photography. And so I still visualize. The problem isn't with developing and designing the shots in the spreadsheet. 
The problem is bringing it into the field and expecting it to happen. And right. I no longer expect that to happen. So um, I don't I don't have any expectation that if I visualize something at home, that I will find it somewhere out in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of stuff in my brain that has never been used before. <laughs> like, and probably shouldn't. But one of the things um, that's important to facilitate the conceptual blending is your prefrontal cortex has to relax. And remember, it relaxes when you sleep. So if you're stressed out, if you're trying to force a photograph, if you're looking for something, your prefrontal cortex is on filtering everything else. And that's Mm -hmm. not what we want to have happen. We want our prefrontal cortex to relax. And for me, that was very difficult. I have a lot of energy. I get really excited about things, especially in the natural world. And so I used to hum a song to myself over and over again until my brain would shut up. (laughs) Um, Now I use mindfulness. Now it's just being, you know, sort of in the present moment. Like I talked about the inventories, just connecting and trying to understand my surroundings first, as opposed to I'm here and I'm going to make a photograph like that. Yeah, that's too much pressure. And your brain's not it's going to have a really hard time. You're basically putting a barrier in front of yourself where you're probably not going to make an image you're proud of. Right. um, By doing that. So, yeah. In your research on this, have you come across uh, the executive control network and the default mode network? Oh, I haven't. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. So I I was asked to give a talk on ekphrastic poetry and photography, which is like way out of my realm. But I love it. (laughs) Um, And so I had done a lot of research on how to get your mind into the creative process and, and that sort of thing. And Um, And one of my goals was to help these writers use nature as a way of boosting their creativity. Awesome. And so just being out in nature, going for a nature walk and all of that. And what happens is we're we're always in this executive control network space, Mm. which I think is your what you're you're, Mm. like. I think it must involve the prefrontal cortex. So that's where we're responding to the world. A text is happening. The dog is barking. The car cuts me off, you know, react, react, react. Uh, Right. And then when we go out, like when we're in, in the shower or we're doing dishes or we're going yep. for a walk in nature, all of a sudden you're sort of in that daydreaming state yep. and that's your default mode network kicking in and it shuts off your executive control network. So that's when creativity starts to happen. So I'm wondering if that's yep. Yep. when those conceptual blends uh, tend to pop up is yep. when your mind is at that rest state. Yeah. And Albert Einstein called that latter part um, effective abstention. Like the idea oh, okay. that we have the best ideas and the aha moment happens in the shower. For me, I get a lot of ideas when I'm driving my truck long distances. Like when you're not, you're not mentally engaged with anything. Yeah. Or um, uh, he also talks about uh, Einstein talks about combinatory play, where you're actually focused on something completely not related to what you're doing, but it ends up influencing it. So yeah. combinatory play being, you know, like, for example, in, in your case, um, like focusing on a, on writing, maybe writing a poem, and then you get the photograph like out of that, for example. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, the, that totally makes sense. I'm going to have to dig into that. Thanks for yeah, I might. <laughs> Thanks I have for to giving see. me that nugget. I'm going. Yes, <laughs> I could go look it up. Oh, I, I might have some references I could send to you. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Always looking to expand the knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we got to the fourth step of the Wallace model. Oh yes, thank yeah. you. That was great. The fourth step is verification. 
So okay. it's it's verifying whether the idea worked or not. And so for us um, photographers, we would tend to think of this as a critique. Um, mm-hmm. I like to critique my work in the field because that's where I can make adjustments. That's where I can make um, I can make improvements. It's very, you know, we've got Photoshop, obviously. Photoshop is not the place for me to make necessarily improvements or fix a photograph. It's to deliver my vision. And yeah, there might be things that I need to touch up, but the Photoshop is really, and and Lightroom and uh, Bridge and all of those things, that's really where I deliver the final the final piece. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and I critique there too. I mean, I critique after the fact and when you're at home and I do critiques and workshops and things like that, but really in the field, I ask is, did what I experience come out of my camera? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then I ask myself some more questions, which is what do I like about the image and what don't I like about it? And I keep and emphasize whatever I like about it and I get rid of anything that I don't like about it. And so I know this sounds like <laughs> like we're talking about this. This may sound like I like it takes like four hours for me to make an image. <laughs> like, there's just so much that goes into it. Like I rest assured that l- listeners like as you practice these things, they become a lot faster. I am not mentally sitting there going, what do I like about it? And then like, you know, half an hour later, I come up with my answer. It's it's a very fast process now that I've practiced it. And so it's just, it's second nature. And that's what I would encourage people to do if they want to try this is it's going to be slow at first, but but practice it. But so critiquing your work um, and then um, making the adjustments that you need, maybe changing your position, changing your emphasis on a certain line, changing, you know, the arrangement a little bit, moving a little left, a little right. Um, that's verification. That's the final. And the, the, the great thing about verification is that you tend to get ideas fed back into the creative process. So I a lot of times I'll be cleaning dust spots uh, on a landscape photograph and I'm zoomed in and I'm like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that macro or that close up. That's right. cool. Yeah. And then so like the whole creative process is like happening as I'm working on an image where I'm like, okay, I've got an idea and now I'm going to think about making a photograph of it. Like, how would I use that as a macro? And I'm cleaning dust spots and I'm like, right, right. My brain is just constantly going. Um, Yeah. And, you know, who knows when I go back to that location, if that that exact scene exists, you know, maybe it does. Maybe that's where I start. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I go somewhere else and I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of similar to what I saw. So it it influences it influences um, kind of the future um, for me and my mm-hmm. work. Yeah, that makes sense. It's all sorts of fun. It is. It <laughs> is way more fun than checking the box of you know rule of thirds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to dive a little bit deeper into other aspects of your creativity, not just photography. Um, I know you're an avid writer as well. So has writing always been a big part of your life, or is that something that you incorporated later? I yes <laughs> um it's been sort of an interesting journey you know in hindsight I look back when I was a, a child I loved creating family newsletters I did newsletters oh, nice. for my school uh-huh. like I liked that um I took a lot of creative writing classes in college and I was one who was not able to take multiple choice tests very successfully, um, mainly because I used divergent thinking. Mm. Um, I could actually justify every single answer if I worked hard enough, which made it 
which made yeah so you know i yeah, totally get that yes crazy yes <laughs> yeah uh made me crazy um so i would actually seek out classes in college that had writing like anything that was like essay driven i was in that class and yeah. so i've done a, a fair bit of writing um i kind i I had this idea my senior year in college. I was like, I would love to write a book someday. I just don't know what to write about. And I like totally dumped that dream as soon as you get into the rat race of corporate America, like gone, poof. Um, And so the photography, I feel, brought me back to the writing. Um, I do love it. I just came back to it very later, like later in my, in my life. So I've had like this gap. Um, but I find that it's, it's kind of a yin yang kind of thing for me with photography. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm inspired visually. Mm -hmm. And so then I focus on, um, verbal. I focus on the writing and a lot of what the pandemic for me, because we weren't able to travel. I mean, it's just been writing books and writing writing, writing columns and writing blogs and writing, writing, writing. And when you write, you see the world a certain way and you poke your brain in a certain way. And when I go back out into the field, like I see the world differently because Mm -hmm. of it and vice versa. Photography influences the writing, of course, um, because we want to get sort of a broad scene, you know, described. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I enjoy I enjoy writing. I've um, recently dabbled in watercolor painting. Oh, fun. <laughs> just as sort of a combinatory play, just kind of a what if, not not anything serious. But what it what struck me with watercolor painting is how much detail you need to see in a landscape mm-hmm. and how little of a landscape I actually see as a photographer. It's it was baffling to me. Um, you know, every little crack and crevice and like shadow. And I mean, I see those things, but I just not to that level of detail. So I am absolutely horrible at watercolor painting, but it is teaching me a new way to observe the world. And so um, things like that are really exciting. Um, We talked about ballet. Ballet is an art. It's just with, you know, physical body movement. You know, I was an athlete growing up so i like that and it triggers different emotions for me and so yeah yeah i don't feel that creativity is really should be contained in the rectangular box that the camera manufacturers give to us sometimes sometimes right. it just doesn't fit and <laughs> yeah so um being able to express yourself in a number of different ways i think is really important um it will influence your work yeah. whether you know it or not yeah 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 that totally makes sense yeah I've heard that you uh, title your images before you compose them. Do you still do that? Is and, I do. And, and why why do that? Is that because of your your writing background, or is it more about that you're trying just think about what the image is about more specifically, or do you ever yeah. change the titles after you've taken yeah. the shot? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, all three of those. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I do. I do try to title my photographs um, and that gets back to using words so that mm-hmm. it drives my my technical choices and my compositional choices. Um, titling my photograph gets into the intent. What is the message that I'm trying to share with people? And a lot of my titles are pretty obscure. Like there's you know, you might look at an image and probably never get to that title. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, that's not why I create the image. I create the image because it meant something to me at the time. Yeah. And how how the world interpreted it is like out of my control. Um, so I try to create some sort of intent. I try to get a few words down. I try to get a title. And that directs 
my vision. I mean, that really is my vision that, that mm-hmm. encapsulates my vision. Yeah. Um, and so then from there, um, sometimes I'll get into the composition or sometimes I'll get into even processing and I'll be like, you know, that's what I was feeling at the time, but I feel like this is maybe a little bit better fit. Um, and so I kind of let it, I kind of let it flow. I don't really, mm-hmm. it kind of gets back into the Mushen thing where I try not to judge it. I just kind of like to recognize it and acknowledge, you know, that we have shifts and we have changes and our, our thoughts can evolve. Like that's not a bad thing. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'll, I'll come up with a title and I'll make a photograph and I'll come up with a, like a slightly different title and I'll make a different photograph. Like it'll just, yeah. So I just yeah. kind of let it, I kind of let it evolve however it, <laughs> however it manifests itself. Right. Yeah. I struggle with titles so much. I, I uh, like, if I tried to title my images before I would take them, I would never take an image. I, and, <laughs> you know? and people say that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's okay. Like if but you I, can get to your essence, like that's fine. You know? Right. It's, it's, it's funny to me. Cause like, I'll be, you know, editing the image and then I'll be like, okay, you know, I think it's capturing what I was feeling or what I'm trying to express. But then putting that into actual words is something I really struggle with. And uh, but thankfully, I've gotten from away from being like snowy tree to something that's <laughs> right. Exactly. So I have gotten a more creative with my titles <laughs> and it does it does um, make me think so much more about the image, about the composition and all mm-hmm. of that. And so it, it is a very yeah. helpful exercise for sure. I think if people are struggling with that, and I did, I struggled with that early on, especially when like, it was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what I'm connecting with. Again, going back to what are you responding to and why going through those inventories. And then I think the the simplest question to ask is what else is it? Yeah. When you ask yourself, what else is it when you're looking at a scene like, um, you know, I've got a I got a photograph of of Lake Mead where I was photographing a sunset and it was on this place. It was called um, Gypsum Ledges, Gypsum Reef. And I thought the scene looked like a whole pan of brownies. Like, Ooh, I mean, that's yum. absurd, right? Like it's a landscape <laughs> photograph, but I was right. definitely, I mean, I was camping, I was stand up paddleboarding for days, but right. I was You're definitely hungry. hungry for brownies, <laughs> but these, but the landscape looked like a pan of brownies. And so like, I, you know, you think about like, how do I convey that? How do I convey that story? How much of, I needed to show a bit of brownies so that you understood what the rock looked like, you know, in, in the context of the scene. And so I think if you can, I mean, that's sort of a silly example, but if you can ask yourself, what else is it? you're going to get beyond snowy trees. You're going to get beyond Untitled 45. You're going to get to a point where you're like, oh, that reminds me of a song I was singing or reminds me of a book I was reading or reminds me of whatever brownies. And that gives you something to at least start with um, in terms of directing, you know, your technical and your compositional choices. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand that you're writing a memoir called Going with the Flow. I How's am. it go? How is it going? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's in its next uh, development edit. Uh, I've been working on it for about six years now. Wow. Um, it was not something I ever intended to write. Um, but this isn't. This isn't the book that you had thought of when you were younger. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know at the time, but um, no. I. It's. Um, it's. It's a. It's a, it's my story about how life made a very uh, big left-hand turn in 2015 unexpectedly and how I had basically failed 
um, failed uh, in, in air quotes, um, failed twice in an eight month time frame after overachieving for 40 years mm. and finding a way to contentment and fulfillment. Um, 40 years of achievement, I thought pursuing happiness, I thought achieving, I thought success, I thought all of that would lead to happiness. Mm-hmm. And I literally, very fortunately, had the American dream, had everything, and I still was unhappy. Mm-hmm. And so um, having these ex- these two experiences in 2015 where my uh, husband and I decided to separate and then I tried to stand up paddleboard across Lake Powell, uh, 141 miles with my mother, and that didn't wow. go quite according to plan. Um, some very scary things, some well, windstorm. We had some scary experiences where we ended up getting rescued off the lake um, oh, wow. well before we were well before we were planning to finish. Um, and the lessons that I learned in the aftermath of that, um, how I became more spontaneous, how I became more grateful, um, mm-hmm. how I treated myself nicely, how to be good enough, how to you know not focus on the achievement you know when we talk about autotelic personality like that fits in and how to how to piece together a meaningful life that that isn't reliant upon societal expectations um, mm-hmm. and and maybe unreasonable personal expectations too which in my case which was the case for me I was a I'm recovering perfectionists. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so it's sort of, that was a long, long explanation for it. it's, it's kind of that story of the journey um, for um, like how, how I basically processed my divorce, how I processed these events and um, came out on the other side, a much happier, much more fulfilled person, which I didn't, I didn't know was possible. So yeah, that's so great. <laughs> I love that it has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully my my hope is is that it helps other people. When I yeah. was going through it at first, um it's it may sound ridiculous, but as a perfectionist, I thought everybody was perfect. I thought everybody like had life figured out and no one was suffering and and I actually spent almost a year with the burden alone. Like I didn't tell anybody because I was embarrassed. I was it was shameful. Yeah. And um, I would, I don't want people to ever feel that. I don't want people to feel alone and I want them to feel like, you know, everybody's suffering in their own way and we're just all trying to get by. Right. Like, yeah. We're all doing the best we can. And, you know, um, by holding on to gratitude and self-care and a whole lot of other things that we can, we can work through the hardships and the adversity we can, yeah. and we can come out better on the other side. So yeah, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping it helps. So I got it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, well, I'm really looking forward to reading it. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I don't, yeah, unfortunately I don't have a timeline yet uh, for its release, but maybe, maybe next year, maybe I'm trying not to rush it because I yeah. want it to be, I don't want to say, I, I don't want it to be perfect. I want it right. to be, I want it to be the right messages. And so that's what I'm working on right now is just trying to get that down. And yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe next, maybe next year. All right. I keep saying that every year. <laughs> <laughs> although, although this year, I will say, I will say this, and this had not happened until about two months ago. I have the ending. Like, I, ooh, nice. The story is done. Like, the package is done, and I didn't have that before two months ago. So that that That's is exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so just briefly, we could shift gears a little bit about the business side of photography. Sure. So I know you have a, your background is in business administration and you've obviously been able to launch a successful photography business. 
So do you think having that business background was was helpful for you getting your business off the ground? And do you think for people who are trying to grow a photography business, should they get some business training, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, obviously I never intended to, you know, start a photography business. I run a publishing company now. Oh, wow. um, so I Yes, the having the business background was like probably one of the smartest decisions I made not knowing what was going to happen for the future. Yeah. If people are interested in pursuing photography as a career, I would absolutely encourage at least a marketing class. Okay. Um, you know, you don't have to go out and get a BBA or an MBA or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but absolutely understanding the marketing side. Um, you know, as a photographer, you're not a starving artist. You have to you have to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And you have to be, you know, evolving, evolving your business constantly. You have to be on the lookout for changes because they are happening constantly. And just trying to, I mean, like the, like the pandemic, like, right. <laughs> like, yeah. like big surprise. Like yeah. if you're not, if you're not in a position where you're like, oh, okay, I need to shift gears and I need to do it right now. Like that's, um, I think part of my business background is, is, is rooted in that. It's like, okay, we're going to try these things. We're going to try these things and, Oh, Nope, that didn't work. We're going to try this again. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this. And so, um, you know, there's, there's some strategic planning that you can do, like, you know, setting, setting a business plan, getting a business plan together, mm-hmm. um, strategic, strategic planning, where, where do you want to go? Um, that would maybe be secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and finance, right? <laughs> finance. Yeah. If you're going to make money, you should probably know how to, you know, know what to do with it. Right. And so finance was was a big, big thing for me and my 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 degree. So, yeah, yeah it, it is all very, very helpful. But if you're going to do one thing in one class, it definitely a marketing. class. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Mm-hmm. So from your business, I understand you probably have multiple revenue streams like workshops and consulting and book sales and print sales mm-hmm. and all of that. So when you were coming up with your business plan, were those revenue streams that you had identified ahead of time or were they things that you sort of followed your nose and sort of incorporated them over time? I had no idea this is where I'd be. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> even the best planning couldn't get like get me to this point. Um, I just followed my nose. And a lot of it was very similar to how I approach how I approach my photography and my composition, which is, you know, if I like it, I'm gonna keep doing it. Mm-hmm. If I don't like it, I'm gonna stop doing it. Yeah. And so my business plan when I came out of Intel in 2007 looks nothing like what I'm doing right now. I had started with art shows. I was doing a lot of editorial outlets. I was doing a lot of commercial shooting. I wasn't doing any teaching at all at the time. Um, so very, very different. And as as opportunities have come up, and as I've you know evaluated them and been like, oh, I it turns out I love publishing books. Like I love everything about publishing books. I love writing them. I love designing them. I love taking measurements for the spine. Like, <laughs> like I love everything about this. And so I just do more of it yeah. and I do more of it now. And so I make it a bigger part of my, my, how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And, and I don't, 
I have a business plan for this year. You know, I, I try to get some structure down, but that doesn't mean that I don't respond to spontaneous opportunities that come up mm-hmm. um, and being flexible and responsive. Um, my business plan next year will probably look pretty different than it did this year. Mm-hmm. And so as I introduce things like river guiding, I'm trying to become a river nice. guide. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, so I, it's just a lot of following my nose, following my curiosity and not being afraid to try new things. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe not liking them, right? And maybe not being great at them, and and just sort of making decisions from there. What's getting? And that's part of selling your work without selling your soul. I did a I do a class on that. Um, I don't think you have to sell your soul to sell your work. I think you can create a life, and then you can you can figure out how to make it work for you. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Cool. I love that. So can you tell us a little bit about your workshops? You know, how do you structure them and like what's your approach to teaching? And then maybe you can tell us a little bit about geography as well and how they're different. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I teach co-ed workshops and I teach uh, all women's workshops and that's under the geography brand, which is a conceptual blend. Yes. <laughs> of course. Of course. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got to come up with something good for my co-ed workshops now. Right. Yeah. Um, but how I structure them is, um, you know, we, we go out into the field uh, usually for four or five days, depending on the location. We go to a, uh, we do go to a beautiful location. You know, I was just in Bandon, Oregon. I do workshops in Acadia National Park. Um, I do them in Moab, Utah with Canyonlands and Arches. I actually even do a Grand Canyon rafting Mm. uh, photography retreat where we raft for eight or nine days through the Grand Canyon. It's so, it's epic. Yeah. Anyway, so my, my goal as an instructor is to really understand the, the attendee, understand the participant, where they're coming from, what their challenges are individually. And then I structure the curriculum based on that. So I have different exercises that we work on in the field. You know, maybe it's just for, you know, a couple of hours. Maybe it's an all day thing. Um, I, with the geography workshops, I just did a scavenger hunt, for example, to kind of mix things up a little bit. But as, a, as an instructor, I really want to bring out the inner inner photographer of every individual. So bringing out their strengths, working on some of the challenges that they're having. Um, it is not about nailing the shot mm-hmm. or, you know, it's much more creative. It's a much more, it's a safe space to explore ideas. Um, I don't tell people where to stand. I, I teach them the process to make them that make that decision for themselves. So I try to make them a more informed photographer, a more analytical photographer, and and ultimately a a more creative, expressive photographer. So, and that's, that requires more individual attention. Um, So I have smaller group sizes, um, and we try to have fun. Yeah. Fun is always scheduled at two o'clock on Thursday. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and part of that is, is, you know, getting into a relaxed state. Part of that is facilitating that dreaming while we're awake and the conceptual blending. So I right. mean, there is a sort of a method to the madness to it, but we try to have a great time. People are on vacation. They're getting away from their jobs, their everyday life. Like it, it, we're out there to have a good time. And I can tell you that we have a magnificent and absolutely fun time every time with every different group it's it's always different but it's always fun yeah oh that's awesome yeah yeah well i'll have to try to join one of your geography trips one of these days oh absolutely 
Yeah, that would be great. That'd be so great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I started geography. A lot of people ask, like, why do I have women separate? I started geography after I started noticing women were learning really differently mm-hmm. when they were together, um, when they were by themselves. And so um, we talk about different things in geography and not better or worse. We just it's it's a different environment um, where I think we have um, fewer expectations. We have less pressure. We have to perform. And it's it's really a place where we can ask a lot of questions. We can make silly mistakes, well, and screw up and learn from them. And so yeah. um, my geography workshops, I, I try if I can to get us in a, a big house, oh, so fun. like 11 bedroom houses Wow, where we like eat, drink, breathe photography and nice. the creative life. And it's, it's a different experience, but it's, it's certainly um, a, f- a fun one. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're going to have to come out. Oh, I would love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Oh, goodness. Yeah. As long as you don't ask me hard hard questions. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay. All right. Let's do this. This is going to be like family feud or something. Exactly. No, no overthinking. Okay. Okay. All right. I understand you have a love affair with water these days. What is it about water that attracts you? It is going with the flow. It's teaching me how to release control and how to be less perfection and embrace the uncertainty. Oh, I like it. There's a whole, that's in my memoir. There's a whole thing. I'm terrified of water where I can't see my feet. Well, I was. Okay. So water, that's the uncertainty. Yeah. So for me, water is about, is plowing through fear. Wow. That's great. Embracing uncertainty. Yes. 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 Knowing you're safe anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you don't drown. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> minor detail. Well, why? Yeah, right. Minor. We're a life vest. Right. <laughs> like... uh, okay. So what's one piece of gear you can't live without that's not photography related? My headlamp. Ooh, I love it. Me too. I love my headlamp. And my down booties. Can I sit? Can I? Oh, oh yeah. My down boot. My down booties. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Uh, gotta be you gotta look good and you gotta be comfortable right exactly totally uh what's your favorite kind of gin uh saint george oh i haven't had that it's so good is it i think it's actually out of california oh okay yeah i read somewhere that you you're you like your gin yeah i do hendrix is not bad either though what is hendrix oh hendrix Hendrix is a good second choice yeah there's one he made in Vermont called Bar Hill. Have you had it? I have not, but I will try it in October when I'm in Vermont. Yes, for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's my top favorite. So good. Why haikus? They are short. They appear easy, but they are not. They are complicated. So it's a challenge. Can you go in a little more detail about why I'm asking you this question? <laughs> Yes. So I have this I have this exercise that I do with my workshop students uh, called the haiku exercise, where we walk through the essentially we walk through the creative process. They don't always know that up front, uh, but we walk through the filling your brain with ideas, you know, the, the preparation, incubation, elimination, inspiration, and verification. And so we do visual inventory. We pick out words, we visualize and we incubate, and then we use those words to create a haiku. Ooh. And so a haiku is a Japanese poetry form. 
it is three lines, and the first line is five syllables, the second line is seven syllables, and the third line is five syllables. And so it is very condensed, and you'd think it'd be like really easy, but like syllables, it's sometimes it's a challenge. You really have to be precise with your choices. And so for me, um, that's a really good way. We start picking out words. It's a really good way to see what we're responding to. Mm -hmm. And then we can match the verbal language with the visual language and the execution nice, and the inspiration illumination. And then we do some verification steps after that. Yeah. But the haiku for me is just, you know, we talked about titling your photograph before you shoot. A haiku is just sort of a little longer. Just a little longer, not a lot longer, but a little longer. Yeah. Uh, it's it's sort of an expansion of that concept. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Why photography? Um I think it's rooted in my childhood somewhat irrational fear that I was never good with words. I actually mm. didn't have a great vocabulary growing up. And so I have been fearful of using words to describe my experiences, um, the obviously lesser now um, today, but still, I, you know, as an introvert, I get, on my, I get myself into situations where I'm like, oh, gosh, did I use the right word? Is that the right? Is that what I meant? I don't know. And so I get sort of anxious about it. And photography allows me to say something about anything mm -hmm. without having that fear. Mm -hmm. And so I will avoid certain social situations with strangers where I'm like, I don't want to be misjudged. I don't want to be misunderstood. I just don't know if I'm like, so for me, that's, that's the root of it. But then it also comes into the Dorothea Lane quote that you talked, you brought up earlier is it, photography helps me see the world in a completely new and different way yeah. One that I would never I would never experience without photography. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So last question. Okay. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Oh, that's, oh, that's a tough, <laughs> that's a hard question. <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately connecting with nature enriches, it enriches my life. And I hope by having those, those connections with nature that I can help enrich other people's lives mm -hmm. and inspire them. I mean, that's why I'm a photographer is I love the great outdoors. It's, it's freeing, it's independence, it's no expectations. The rocks don't care what you wear. They don't care who you are. Like, and the water doesn't care either. Like the birds don't either. And so for me, connecting with nature is putting me into the truest form of me as mm -hmm. a human being mm -hmm. that I can get into. Yeah. And by getting into that space, I can fulfill my life purpose, which mm -hmm. is for me, I want to help other people. Yeah. I want to help people get outside. I want them to live a fulfilling, meaningful life. And so for me, that enables that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that was a hard question. <laughs> you nailed it. But a good one. But a good one. I like it. Yeah. I yeah. Like it. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of this wonderful information and inspiration with us. Uh, it's just been incredible and so much fun. Oh, so thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Brenda. I appreciate the conversation. It's been great. Yeah. Um, so if people wanted to learn more about your workshops and your books and any other projects, your photography, what's the best way for them to find you? 
Yeah, so my website is www.colleenminnick.com. It's my first and last name. Um, that's the kind of the central location. You can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram and social media. Um, and uh, if you're interested in getting first uh, first notification, first heads up on things like my workshops and events, I'd encourage you to jump on my newsletter. A lot of my workshops sell out a year two years in advance. And so I announce those with my newsletter folks first before I release those to the public. Mm -hmm. And so if you are interested and you can get that from my, my website as well. So awesome. And then I understand that you have uh, one of your guidebooks is coming out with a second edition. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so uh, Photographing Acadia National Park is a book that I wrote in my third uh, artist-in-residency in 2014, and we sold out of books. Uh, thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody. Um, a lot of people getting out in Acadia and putting it to good use, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I have obviously grown since 2014. A lot of the things that we've talked about today were not things that were at the forefront of my mind when I wrote the book. Mm. And so I have rewritten it. Um, You know, it is 50 different locations across Acadia to photograph, but it also includes making the photo stories, which is more creative um, and inspirational stories about like haikus, for example, how I approach haikus is in there and um, how to how to keep it fresh. I mean, I've visited Acadia over 400 days now since 2009. How do you get new ideas right. like in a place that you keep going back to over and over again? And so I really wanted to inject some of those learnings into the book. Um, mm-hmm. There's over 80 new photographs. Obviously, my hopefully my photographs have improved since 2014 <laughs> as well. So I, I, I see it as kind of an upgrade. It's, it's kind of an improvement. It's a celebration of what's been going on since 2014 for me in hopes that it provides even more inspiration for folks that want to go out to a, a, you know, a beautiful, almost, you know, iconic place in Acadia and find their own voice there. There are so many beautiful things there. And so, yeah, that's, that's coming out and uh, we've got a special deal yeah. for the listeners. Yeah. Right? Yes, we do. <laughs> Which is so great. So uh, I think you're saying 10% off the Photographing Acadia Guidebook second edition and I'll put the code, the special code in the show notes. It's going to be OPS 2021. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, you can get 10% off the book uh, and or the ebook if you wish. So yeah, we'd love to provide that. Excellent. Love to get people out into Acadia. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And I'll put all the links in the show notes, your, your website, your social media, Perfect. all that stuff. And then also some of the other books that you mentioned earlier in our conversation today. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I hope to catch you when you get to Vermont. I, yeah, I know. We'll have to connect out there. That'll be so fun. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds great. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Colleen Minnick. And again, you can find out about her photography, books, workshops, and more at her website at Colleen Minnick. That's M-I-N-I-U-K dot com. And I highly recommend checking out her Photographing Acadia guidebook. I've just received my copy of the second edition, and it is just packed with valuable information. And so I'll put the links in the show notes for everything we discussed today at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 19. And again, thank you, Colleen, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listeners, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. We have several exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including landscape photographer Cody Schultz, to talk about the immersive process of large format black and white photography, 
And shortly after that, we'll have nature photographer Jennifer Renwick on the show to chat about what it's like to be a full-time photographer, finding compositions in abstracts of nature, and the value of photography projects. So be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss out on these great conversations. And I'll be back here next week with a little bit of a different version of our normal Tidbit Tuesdays. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.